This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the presence of your Holy Spirit. And we do ask for the presence of Jesus to be with us, that we might be learners, that we might gain insights and wisdom for our future and our present. And Lord, as we deal with these sensitive issues, these important issues with regard to how they affect our families, we just ask for your Holy Spirit to do the teaching, that all of our thoughts and uh, opinions would be set aside and we would hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever read Numbers 25? The story of the Israelites, they were about to cross the borders of the, of, of the, the banks of the Jordan into Canaan. And Balak... T- Tried to get Balaam to curse the Israelites, right? Did it work? Balaam did not curse the Israelites. He blessed them, right? So what was Satan's next strategy and tactic to get the Israelites off their aim and goal of the promised land? It was the Moabite, what, do you know? Women. And now we read that just as in the days of ancient Canaan, it will be the same in the last days. Listen to this statement from Review and Herald. It says, The very same Satan is now working to weaken and destroy the people who are just on the borders of the what? The heavenly Canaan. Satan knows it is his time. He has but little time left now in which to work, and he will work with tremendous power to ensnare the people of God upon their weak points of character. Now, here's where it comes in. There will be women who will become tempters and who will do their best to attract and win the attention of men to themselves. And so we have a prediction that in the very last days, right before the close of time, right where we're about to head into the heavenly Canaan, that the lust issue, the sexuality issue, will be coming in and derailing God's people. Has this been fulfilled or what? Is this being fulfilled before our very eyes, literally, as we are assaulted day in and day out with sexual images, particularly preying upon men as the men of Israel were destroyed by this great temptation of Satan? Now, when you go back to the Ten Commandments, you find a very interesting statement that has actually, a lot of skeptics have really made, made a, a big deal out of this. And it, at a first glance, it, it's sort of puzzling. It says that the Lord is a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. And when you first read that, you wait, wait a minute, that, that, that doesn't seem to, at first glance, harmonize with the statements in the Torah that say, Children should not be punished for their father's sins. Or Ezekiel 18, which teaches the same thing. And you're going, wait a minute, scratching my head. How do I understand this? Hopefully we just take it on faith. That the Lord knows what he's talking about. Something is going on here. And my sense of justice is going to be ultimately weak compared to God's. So I take it on faith that this is valid. But you know what? We now know from the science how that statement is valid. Visiting the sins of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Have you heard of the field of epigenetics? Fascinating field of study showing that your genetics that you received from, as an inheritance from your parents are not fixed. They're not set in stone. You have a genetic code, but those genes express in different ways depending on various factors. Choices, thoughts, diet, lifestyle, healthy living, all of these things change gene expression. They don't actually change the code, but they change which genes turn on and which turn off. So your genetic code is passed along to your children, but get this. These changes in your gene expression are passed on to your children and then subsequently grandchildren and great-grandchildren. How many generations? Isn't that incredible? 
What we've known from the Bible for thousands of years, now finally science is confirming. And what does this have to do with parenting? What does this have to do with the issues we're talking about today? We read in Child Guidance, parents stamp their faults upon their children to the third and fourth generation. Stamp their faults upon their children. By the way, there's a good side of this too. The flip side of the coin is when I overcome sin, when I gain victories in my life, when I have the joy of the Lord and I have a healthy lifestyle, I pass those positive gene expression changes also along to my children. Amen? Is that good news? Amen. And so as parents, it's not just our modeling that we talked about yesterday by living the life of Christ. It's not just our parenting strategies that we talked about that will mold our children's character. It is who we are at the genetic level. And this is why I really want to talk with those who haven't had children yet on this. Because you guys and the folks who've had children are going, man, I already missed that boat. You know, my genes went on already. The Lord will still do miraculous work in changing your children. But those who have not had children yet, you guys have the opportunity to say, I'm going to gain those victories in my life now before I have children. Now, Mrs. White also wrote some things regarding this issue of, of, of passing along tendencies to our children that have puzzled people. Back before we knew the field of epigenetics, she talked about the issue of self-abuse and these sorts of things and how they were going to be passed along to children. And we, a lot of people have really questioned, you know, really, all of these 19th century morals about self-abuse and it's going to cause all of these ailments and physical deformities and deficiencies. And people really made fun of her and other 19th century writers who were saying some of the same things. But really, what, what we now know from the science is that we know addictions run in families, first of all, but we also know that what the science is saying about the issue of masturbation in particular is really confirming everything that people have scoffed at for generations that you find in the spirit of prophecy. I don't have time to go through them all. In the full seminar called A Greater Lust, I have a whole session on this topic. And I go point by point through all of the seemingly obscure things she says will result from this practice. And point by point, they're all confirmed by modern science. It's incredible. But how about just this one study by Cooper and Carnes? Masturbating as little as two times per week has been shown to increase depression, memory problems, lack of focus, concentration problems, fatigue, back pain, and pelvic or testicular pain. So if you're looking at uh, A Solemn Appeal to Mothers by, by Ellen G. White, you, you, if you've read that, you've seen many of these things coming up in Spirit of Prophecy writings that are also being confirmed just in recent research, 2001 and 2004. You read in the book Wired for Intimacy by Dr. William Struthers, masturbation is playing with neurochemical fire. It affects one emotionally and neurologically. So when we talk about the issue of lust, a lot of times we just leave it in the realm of pornography and what you're viewing with your eyes. What we're reading here is that it's, it's doing things in the brain physio physiologically regardless of what you're viewing. We will be talking about pornography, but just the act in itself, we're hearing from, this is not an Adventist scholar, this is, this is a, 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 a secular Christian, so semi-Christian uh, writer on the topic. But here we see Satan tells the young that there is time enough yet, that they may indulge in sin and vice this once and never again. We tell ourselves that, don't we? Oh, just this once. This is the last time I'm going to eat this. How many times have we said things like that? But that one indulgence will poison their whole life. Do not once venture on forbidden ground. In this perilous day of evil, when allurements, device, and corruption are on every hand, let the earnest, heartfelt cry of the young be raised to heaven. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? And may his ears be open and his heart inclined to obey the instruction given in the answer 
by taking heed thereunto according to thy word. If you want victory, if you want to cleanse your way, study Psalm 119. Go through that in devotional time. Ponder these things. Incredible Psalm. I love Psalm 119. But people still say, men's so-called, particularly men's, we'll talk about some ladies' issues in a moment, but they say men's sexual needs, so-called, must be fulfilled. Is that true? Will you die if you do not engage in some sort of sexual practice of acting out, either privately or with somebody? Will you die? It is not a need for survival. Will you die if you don't drink water? Yes. Will you die eventually if you don't eat food? Yes. This is a dip. Even though it's wired into the same area of the brain, it is different and distinct because you won't die from it. It's still in the survival, you know, uh, baser, you know, passions within the brain, within the limbic system. So people get that confused because it's within the same circuitry. But it is different in that you will not die. You can live a whole life completely. How about Jesus? 33 years? No sexual experiences, perfect purity. And he didn't die from it. So it's definitely not a need. Uh, in fact, within you study human biology and psychology, nothing suggests that it is an actual need. You won't die. You won't miss out on, on experiences. There are biological phenomena by which if you're not utilizing the, the sexual um, gifts that God has given us, it will emit nocturnally and done, right? You don't have to engage in habits, addictive practices, frequenting prostitutes, viewing pornography. We are being lied to in our culture that this is a need, this is just what guys do. Uh, not so, not a need. So we've covered that. The Bible says you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Every desire, every true desire that we have that God has given to us will be fulfilled. Do we have a need? Do we have a need for sexually acting out? No, but you know what we do have a need for? is intimacy. Intimacy in the broader sense of the term. I don't mean sexual intimacy. Intimacy can be fulfilled in a sexual context in the marital relationship, or our need for intimacy can be fulfilled in a brotherly relationship, in a relationship with a friend, with family, with Jesus Christ most of all. And the need for transcendence to go, go above the normal human experience is met in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Many people find, try to meet these needs in pornographic pursuits, in drug use, in these sorts of things where you experience euphoria and transcendence. God has met that need for us in Jesus Christ. We don't have to pursue it in the devil's counterfeits. We'll talk more about intimacy in a minute. But people ask, do I have to completely abstain from this practice? Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Not only does God require you to control your thoughts, but also your passions and affections. Your salvation depends upon your governing yourself in these things. And when we look at the statistics, it is very, very scary. Only 13.9% of young adult males never view pornography. 13.9%. Won't never view pornography. One Canadian researcher attempted to launch a study on university-age men. He said, I want to show them pure minds. I'm going to show them pornography and see what it does to the brain and to their, to their lives. Terrible study he wanted to launch. But you know what? The study couldn't go forward because they couldn't find any college-age males who weren't already using pornography. This is a sobering wake-up call for those of us who have been naive about how pervasive this issue really is. His statement maybe overstated it slightly, but he said, guys who do not watch pornography do not exist. That was the findings of his study. I couldn't find anybody to do my study on. They just don't exist. How about within the church? That was a secular university. 50% of Christian men in evangelical churches admit in surveys to being addicted to 
pornography, and 54% of pastors have viewed pornography in the previous year in 2002. I don't imagine it's gotten a whole lot better in the last 12 years. So you might say, why is it so hard to stop? I know many in this room are struggling with this issue. Why is it so hard to stop? Why can't I stop? Moral principle is exceedingly weak when it conflicts with established habit. And I'm going to show you what has happened to your brain. That's a normal human brain under a SPECT scan, okay? Nice and full colors. You see what's going on in a normal, healthy brain. This is a pornography user's brain. Do you see the holes, the areas of non-functionality, the areas that have been reduced and damaged, especially particularly at the bottom, that's the prefrontal cortex. If you can see that, it's kind of dark, but it's got a giant hole taken out of it. Not much going on in the prefrontal executive centers of self-control in the brain. To compare it even further, this is from the bottom. This is a cocaine addict's brain. Now the front is at the, is at the top of the, of the image. This is the, a scan from the bottom of the brain. That's a cocaine addict's brain. Compare it with a pornography addict's brain. When I saw that, my jaw hit the floor and I said, I have to talk about this more. We have to deal with this issue. We are really, really, well, let's let the Bible say it. 1 Corinthians 6.18, he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now we understand more what the Apostle Paul was talking about. We are ruining our physiology, our neurology, our spiritual nature by this practice. And Dr. Jeffrey Satinover has talked about this. He says, modern science allows us to understand that the underlying nature of an addiction to pornography is chemically nearly identical to a heroin addiction. And Dr. Judith Reisman echoed this before the Senate testifying, saying, pornography triggers a myriad of endogenous internal natural drugs that mimic the high from a street drug. Addiction to pornography is addiction to what I dub erototoxins, mind-altering drugs produced by the viewer's own brain. Wow. And people might say, well, okay, I know there's a lot of people that are viewing this stuff every week. They're engaged in these practices all the time, multiple times a week. But, you know, it's not a major problem for me. I've maybe viewed it once or twice in the last year, slipped up and so on. This is not how we talk about drugs. We don't say, you know, I don't really have a problem with heroin because I've only used it a couple times in the last year. Pornography is not healthy in any dose, right? If you're not, even if you're not clinically addicted to something, you don't say I'm going to take small doses of infrequent use of cocaine. So if we are periodically going back to this, we do have a problem with it, even if it's not a day in and day out, week in and week out issue. So the wake up call is important. Now, I don't want to leave folks without hope. So we want to make sure that we're talking about recovery and how to gain victory over this. But I want to now turn the attention just to the conversation here with the ladies. Young ladies, the, 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 the sober reality, the, the, the reality check that, that we have to realize is it's going to be difficult in the culture that we find ourselves in today, and I don't mean to throw my brothers under the bus, you're gaining victory, but it is going to be difficult to find a gentleman who is a suitable marriage partner who is far enough along in this journey of, of, of overcoming that you're going to say, this is, this is a quality enough candidate, if you will, for this position of father of my children. If those who are contemplating marriage would not have miserable, unhappy reflections after marriage, they must make it a subject of serious, earnest reflection now. This step, moving into marriage, taken unwisely, is one of the most effective means of ruining the usefulness of young men and women. Life becomes a burden, a curse, 
No one can so effectively ruin a woman's happiness and usefulness and make, a life, uh, and make life a heart-sickening burden as her own husband. And no one can do 100th part as much to chill the hopes and aspirations of a man to paralyze his energies and ruin his influence and prospects as his own wife. It is from the marriage hour that many men and women date their success or failure in this life and their hopes of the future life. That's a serious, be careful with this marriage issue because you need to have some serious personal conversations before getting too serious in a relationship of courtship, thinking about considering marriage. Serious personal conversations about how we're doing in our, in our moral lives. Very many of the young men and women, too, in this age of the world are lacking in virtue. Therefore, great caution is needed. Adventist Home, page 51. And ladies especially, imagination... Lovesick sentimentalism should be guarded against as would be the leprosy. And you know what I'm trying to say by the kind of images I pasted on the screen, right? Hollywood paints this image of touchy-feely, happy, romantic feelings, and it is such a counterfeit of love. It is a feelings-based sentimentality. Love is a principle, Love is the very character of God. It is relational, yes. There are feelings of connectedness, yes, because God is three. He is a relationship. But love is a principle of self-sacrificing. If I say to myself, like many young women do, he's going to fulfill my greatest dreams and aspirations for romance and happiness, or as many men do, she's going to fulfill my sexual fantasies and give me pleasures unbounded. Me? I'm going to get something out of this, is the thought. And that is going to lead to a miserable marriage. Because many people end up in a situation of, I need you. If you're dating somebody, courting somebody, engaged to somebody, and the mentality of one or the other is, I can't live without you, this is a dangerous situation. That's not love. That's dependency. That's, that means, you know what, this person is not emotionally mature enough it is not stable and confident enough in themselves as an individual to be able to pour themselves out for another, another self-sacrifice in the context of marriage. They're needing, they're taking. It's a dependency relationship of I need you. You know you're not ready to marry the person if you need them. You know you're not ready to marry the person if you can't live without them. You may be ready to marry them. They may be the right person if you can live without them. Because now you're to the point of emotional maturity in your life and confidence and individuality where you have enough security in yourself that you can move forward and be a blessing to others instead of a drain. So don't even consider a relationship until you've matured sufficiently, meaning you've moved from selfishness and, and, and feelings of worthlessness, which are two sides of the same coin. I pity the person who has been victimized, the person who has been shot down and put down their whole life so they're in this situation of dependency. That's not meant to be a slam on that person. That person has been a victim and they need healing. But also there's just the selfish person. I want my pleasures. I want to gain something out of this. And that also is something that must be overcome before we move into the situation. How about the noble reason for a relationship? I think she would be the best ministry partner, the best mother, the best person that I would really love serving, sacrificing my needs and desires for, and uplifting and blessing her or 
he would make an incredible ministry partner, an amazing father. He is the kind of person that I could live day in and day out, sacrificing my needs and wants and my greatest dreams and fairy tale dreams for. And I can say, I want to bless him. That's true, holy Christian marriage. Because marriage can be the most toxic thing. Two selfish people in a marriage or two dependent, insecure people in a marriage is a train wreck. And I'll tell you something. Marriage is intended, though. It was given in the Garden of Eden to be the most beautiful picture of Christ in the church, of the unity and intimacy of God himself. Our marriages can speak infinite volumes about the love and self-sacrifice of our creator and testify to the character of Christ, the very Christ who gave himself up for her, the bride, that he died on the cross that she might be saved, that we might be saved. If we have that kind of mentality with our relationships, we can think maybe this could, this could work. So dating and courtship is not for the purpose of having fun. It's not for the purpose of having some, some, some romance and some good feelings. It's for the very serious process of qualifying a candidate for the most important position you will ever hire for, ministry partner and mother-father of your children. And that doesn't mean it's like a cold, rational thing and there's no you know, happiness and joy and feelings. In fact, Mrs. White said to marry somebody that you don't love is a sin. So you know, we do want to have that component of it. You know, to think your wife is beautiful is a great thing. It's a gift from God. To think your husband is the most romantic, wonderful guy ever is a great thing. It's a gift from God. But if we base our relationship solely on that, we're building it on very thin ice. Now, this is the beautiful thing. If you're dating, if you're in a courtship situation and you get dumped, and you view dating and courtship as an interview process of qualifying candidates for, to, for this position you're hiring for, now when they dump you, you don't need to feel so broken up about it. You, can just, you don't have to say, oh, my life is over. I'm so hurt. I can't go on another day. You can say, thank you for showing me that you don't qualify. <laughs> because the number one qualification is this person wants to be with me too, right? I mean, the number one is that they're a follower of Christ and all of that. And they're, but somebody doesn't qualify if they don't want to be with you. So if they dump you, oh, good. You've just given me very important information that you don't qualify. So don't take it personally, right? <laughs> you don't want to marry that person, right? You don't want to marry a person who doesn't want to. There's a billion people in the world who don't want to marry you. This is not an insult upon your self-worth. Okay, I should say seven billion plus six billion, wherever we're at now. The, the, don't take it personally like this, this means something about my self-worth and value. No, this is just not the right match is how that person feels about it, and therefore it's how you feel about it because that's the conclusion they've drawn. If you're in a place where you are personally hiring, okay, <laughs> Our high calling, 257, be guarded as to where you bestow your affections. Be guarded as to where you bestow your affections. So you don't bear all to the person, emotionally speaking. You don't dive into this feeling of just being swept away head over heels. That's dangerous. You want to be guarded with your affections. Falling head over heels is a surefire way to overlook serious problems in that person that could have eternal consequences. And those lovey-dovey feelings are, I hate to break it to you, they're brain chemicals. And they're especially strong for about 18 months to two years. And they fade drastically after that. And many people get into a relationship. They give themselves up physically. They move in together or they get married. And then they go, oh, I don't feel the same way about the person I used to. I've fallen out of love. 
It's very tragic. People think that that's, that's how they defined love, was the feeling. And then the relationship starts to break up when those chemicals start to fade, which they inevitably do. Also, guard your purity. And by the way, that doesn't mean you don't have feelings for your spouse anymore. I, I'm, trying, I'm going really fast over this. Like, I love my wife. We have great feelings for each other. But, you know, those intense, insane feelings at the beginning, that's just part of God's initial way to bond us. And, be, you know, expect that to not always feel exactly that same way all the time. So... Guard your purity, of course. Studies have shown that those who remain pure have better marriages, more successful marriages. It's just a fact of, of, of the research now, and we know it from the Bible also. That person, by the way, that you're looking at as a potential candidate is on his or her best behavior. Do you realize this? You can be on really good behavior for months or even for years while you're dating, engaged, or newly married. I, just just as a show of hands, how many of you know somebody where you saw two people dating and you, you, the, the guy or the girl was doing really good things, very good behavior, and then things started to change a little bit later? How many of you have seen that happen? Yeah, that's like half of the group. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Don't gloss over their character flaws and say, it'll just go away, or I'll help him, I'll change her, I'll make him improve. This is foolishness, absolute foolishness. You want to make sure that this, by the way, how about this? It will generally get worse after marriage. People's flaws are magnified once they enter into the familial relationship. And you'll find your own flaws, by the way. You might think you're a pretty good and patient person and then get married and then have kids. And then you're going, whoa, I've got some work to do with the Lord. He's going to do some work on me here. So as you're evaluating this person, Always remember, rule of thumb, it will generally get worse after marriage, not better, and you aren't the one to fix them, and you won't. So it's not your job anyway. It's not your job to change them. It won't work. Ask yourself, how do they treat their parents? That's an important question. Especially how does the gentleman treat his mother? Especially how does the young lady interact with her father? That will be a little bit of a window into how these relationships could play out in the marital context as well. And so if you see disrespect, if you see dishonesty, if you see a rebellious, any sort of, you know, not treating, honoring father and mother properly, that's how family relationships go with this person. And it's going to find its way into your family as well if you wed yourself to them. If they are dishonest to others... It's only a matter of time before they would be dishonest to you. So don't overlook it. Oh, you know, it's not a big deal. That person's a, a mean person anyway, and so we were dishonest to them, and it's okay. It's not. A successful marriage, by the way, counts in the parenting department. You might say, Scott, why did you bring this stuff into the parenting seminar? Because if you think about it, when children see the way that mom and dad love and respect one another, they are getting a glimpse into the character of God either for good or for a distorted mischaracterization of God. And they will understand God's character very much, not only by how mom and dad interact with the children, but by with how mom and dad interact with each other. Love and respect need to be the key bedrock of our household. If there's that intimacy in the home, if there's love and intimacy and respect in the home, they're going to have a much more healthy emotional development. Did you know that the majority, I shouldn't say the majority, a, a disproportional amount of men who struggle with pornography addiction grew up in homes that were emotionally detached, grew up in homes where there wasn't much familial intimacy. And so they become 
intimacy starved. I love the story of these moths. They brought these gypsy moths to New England a hundred years ago, and they were trying to start a silk industry. And these gypsy moths escaped, reproduced, and were destroying all the trees. And so they're going, ah, oh no, the gypsy moths have wreaked havoc with our ecosystem. And so they tried to destroy them. Let's spray them with this chemical or something. And they couldn't subdue the gypsy moths. So they figured something out. They said, all right, here's our strategy and our tactic and our plan. They captured the scent of a female gypsy moth and encapsulated it into an actual synthetic capsule that had a super hyper strength uh, scent of the female gypsy moth. And during mating season, they simply took these capsules and released them in the environment of the gypsy moths. The male gypsy moths come out fluttering their wings and they're ready normally to go and find their, their, their mate, right? In this context, they smell... Oh, crazy intense smell of a gypsy moth. Well, it wasn't the female gypsy moth, but they're just surrounding these pellets and just obsessed with these pellets. And the gypsy moths are off over here, and the females, and they're going, what's going on? And the men are just on, on top of the pellets like it's the real thing. Are you seeing the analogy? Isn't this a powerful analogy? These gypsy moths, are intim- they, they want intimacy. They have a drive for intimacy, but they're drawn to a counterfeit. It's kind of like this. And sexual addictions are the same thing. They're rooted in a search for intimacy. And the analogy is, let's say you're starving, okay, for food. You're starving for actual food, and you walk into a gas station, and you notice the Twinkies there. And your body says, I am starving for real nutrients. I am depleted of real energy, but that looks like food. I've tasted it before, and it tastes incredible. Is a Twinkie food, by the way? It's not. It's a a counterfeit food. It's not food. Just because you can chew something, masticate it, salivate it, and have it partially digested and leaving traces of nastiness in your GI tract does not mean it's food, right? I mean, it's not food. It's a counterfeit food. And it poses as food. This is what pornography and sexually alluring images are doing to the minds of men. Many men are intimacy starved because we don't have deep intimate relationships with our brothers in Christ. We didn't have a great connection with our father. We didn't have the home life that we should have had. And this thing just tastes so good. And it's so much better tasting than the real thing. And so they go for it and we are like the gypsy moths, not going for the true intimacy that God has designed us for. Pornography destroys intimacy, and not just marital intimacy. They found in studies, well, let me share them with you. People often say things like, well, you know, I, I do struggle with lust, self-abuse, but once I, get, once I get married, then it'll all go away, and I'll be, I'll be, it'll heal me. Ask any of the millions of men, the majority of men in the church today, who are struggling with pornography, married men. Ask them if getting married healed their sexual addiction. Absolutely does not. So what they found in the studies is when you go to this type of hyper-stimulating experience, what it does is it numbs the pleasure receptors within the brain. And so in one study, researchers exposed subjects to pornography almost every day for only six weeks, and subjects were far less satisfied with their marital sexual relationships. Another study found that after viewing only 26 sexually alluring slides and one six-minute video, subjects were less attracted to their wives. By the way, these studies are horrible, obviously. We should never do them, but they, they learned what we already knew, didn't we? In 2005, a study of internet users showed a significant correlation between pornography use and loneliness in general. So it's not just marital intimacy that is destroyed. Your your, your mind gets the sense that you've had intimacy fulfilled, even though it was a counterfeit, 
And so you don't go looking, for, kind of like if you've eaten your Twinkie, you're full, you know, you're not like, please give me a salad now. So same thing here, loneliness and depression come in for the pornography addict, which brings to a very, 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 very important point that I want to communicate to the men particularly and the ladies, about three times as many men as women involved in this. But I, I know I've talked to you and I've talked to many, many, many men in this cycle of addiction and I know the feeling is total shame and worthlessness and I'm a failure. And so don't let any of the comments and the scriptures and the admonitions and the rebukes thus far in the session and the scientific findings, don't let them beat you down in a way where you feel I am just a failure and I might as well not even try. Do you know who the voice of that is? That's the voice of the accuser. The voice of Jesus Christ is when he came to the man at the pool of Bethesda and he leans over him and he says, do you want to be made well? And the, the kindness, the grace, the forgiveness, like the woman caught in adultery, he said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I'm going to be the one to give you the power for that, right? He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a big difference between guilt and shame. God gives us guilt. It's a gift. It's a, a little reaction within our uh, nucleus, or within our uh, anterior cingulate cortex of the brain. And it says, guilt going off. I feel like something has been violated here. I've done something wrong. That's good because you know what it does? It motivates us to make it right. We say, now I want to get on my knees before God and ask forgiveness. Or I need to make it right with the person that I just wronged. Shame is different than guilt. Shame is what I carry around every day because the accuser has beaten me down one too many times and I just am a failure. Not I failed, I slipped up and now I can, a righteous man can get up seven times when, he's, when he falls down, as the proverb says. But no, I'm not getting up. Just kick me while I'm down and we just live in this place of ongoing shame. And it's very, very unhealthy actually because when you ruminate over your failures, it's passing the brain activity over the same circuits of the very behavior you engaged in. So you're widening the pathways that you went down when you're engaged in ruminating over your failures. This is why God wants to forgive us so we can forget about it and move forward. And then we can have new pathways in the brain. And all of this pathway stuff and brain healing, I just want to urge upon you the full seminar because I'm not getting into anything of substance in terms of victory. Minor, minor points. And so a greater lust, please view, especially the last three discs on that, of all the stuff our ministry has put out, I feel strongest about this because I don't have any, uh, I'm not fooling myself about the idea that, oh, you know, the Adventist church, we're not struggling with this. Those are the evangelical numbers, 50% of Christian men addicted to pornography. This is an issue within our church as well as the evangelical churches, and so we need help. And so God has given us the principles. Let me share with you the scientific, uh, I guess the brain experience that I call the lust cascade. You may have heard of the stress cascade in the, in the brain and body. The lust cascade is something altogether different, and it takes us through the process of Alluring image, sexually interesting image shows up from the moment that it hits the eyes to the moment that we engage in, in acting out through self-abuse. How does this process go along the way and where can you arrest the process and stop it from happening? So let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, the hypothalamus. This is the area within the brain that is hardwired for desire, for food, for water, for sexual desires. It's not very plastic and we don't, we can't, 
get that to go away. And we shouldn't want it to go away. God has given us this area of the brain, and it's not something you, you overcome your need for water. You know, you overcome your desire for, for being attracted to the opposite sex. This is something that is hardwired within us. So don't feel it's a sin to think that the other, uh, the other gender is, is uh, more attractive than, than the, the gender of your own. This is what God has given to you. And by the way, if you're struggling with homosexual desires, that desire within you itself is not the sin. It is the, the lusting upon it as we go forward in the process. You're going to see. You identify where in this process it becomes sin, okay? So the fact that we are attracted, is that sin? No. The fact that an ice cream cake looks good, <laughs> no, it just looks good. I don't, have to, I don't have to embrace that. I don't have to follow through with that. I don't have to think about that. But moving on with where it starts to become an issue. When you see the image... Let's say the billboard on the highway, the pop-up on the computer, the magazine at the grocery store, whatever. The, it goes through an area of the thalamus called the LGN. This area is hardwired, not very plastic. So noticing it, the initial noticing, is something that just will happen. The LGN will notice it, automatically sends the image to the occipital lobe. Now this is where you make a choice in the occipital lobe, do I dwell upon that image? Occipital lobe's here in the back. Do I hold the image? Do I think about that image further? Do you think we've reached the step where it's sin? This is the step, isn't it? Because I'm making a choice. This is the step where I'm saying, I'm going to continue to ponder this. I'm going to continue to behold this. That looks good. I like that. And you, you, you embrace the image. So, And this, by the way, can be like a half a second. It's not like a full minute that I'm talking about. This is very, very quick. You hold that image, you make a choice in that moment. If you're taking in sexual cues throughout the day like this, instead of immediately rebuking the thought as we're going to talk about momentarily, what it does is it, is it releases testosterone into the bloodstream, which is very slow to dissipate. It's wave upon wave of testosterone being released. I'm talking mainly about men's images right now that we're, that we're being hit with. And, and that primes the body for sexual action. And, and by the way, once, you're, you're start, once you've started this lust cascade, it's kind of like, you know, when you decided to hold that image, then when you decided to look a second time, here you have a, a process that's like getting on a highway with super high containment walls and very few off-ramps. Once you're on that highway, the physiological process is engaged, your heartbeat increases to 100 beats per minute. At that point, the prefrontal cortex shuts down. And that's the area where you have victory, where you can have control, where you can make choice. And so once the prefrontal cortex shuts down, it's going to be really difficult to get it back. And this is why so many people, once they reach this step, every time they slide down that slippery slope. Cortisol and norepinephrine have been released, and you are in survival reactive mode. Step four, as you've beheld that image or thought more than that initial millisecond, the drive tension of the hypothalamus increases, and this causes amygdala agitation. This is the feeling of needing that, uh, that, that tasty dessert. This is the feeling of really wanting to behold and, and, and ruminate upon that image that you saw, the amygdala. This is, the, by the way, that's the fear circuits within the limbic system. Then, as tension and anxiety within the amygdala increases, it demands a response. The amygdala wants to be released of its agitated state. And so this is where usually men will respond through seeking more pleasurable images, eventually through masturbation. This releases enormous quantities of dopamine and endogenous opiates, and the pleasure reward centers of the nucleus accumbens and the cingulate cortex are stimulated. Upon ejaculation, the amygdala immediately is calmed, anxiety and tension is released. 
So the amygdala became agitated because the image, the thought, the feeling was entertained. The amygdala clamored for it, and it got it. And that's the lust cascade. So how to stop it from happening? How do you stop this slippery slope from engaging and for taking you down into the pit of despair every time? Well, don't look for more than that millisecond. Don't look a second time. Now, I know that's easier said than done, but this is actually the key. It's that initial moment, that millisecond where, and you may not even have looked. You can see it out of the corner of your eye that there's skin right there. And so you don't even look the first time, that time, right? If you know it's there. Sometimes it just hits you and then you bounce your eyes immediately. In fact, I want to use bounce as an analogy in a moment, but you know what else helps? They've actually found a deep breath calms your, your ability to use your prefrontal cortex. It fills your, your body and your brain, your bloodstream with oxygen, and you can, you can think better and have more victory, more control, more decision in your life, which is incredible because in Ministry of Healing 272, it says a good respiration soothes the nerves. Guess what? There's a nerve right here in the top of the back of the neck that links into the limbic system, and it's called the dorsal vagal nerve. It is soothed when you take a big, deep breath. A good respiration soothes the nerves. How did she know? I just love spirit of prophecy. So more oxygen to the prefrontal cortex. All of this is going to happen. But I know that many, many users of pornography, many people engaged in these behaviors have tried hard not to look. And I want to be clear on this. How do you not look? Trying not to think about something doesn't work. Because when you're trying not to think about it, try not to think about a donkey with a ribbon in its hair right now, okay? Nobody in the room think about a donkey with a ribbon in its hair. Don't think about it. There's no donkey with a ribbon. You're thinking about it, aren't you? See, you're trying not to doesn't work. Jesus said if a demon is cast out, just leaving the house empty and sweeping it and putting it in order is going to invite seven more in, more wicked than itself. So we've got to fill the house with something. Immediately fill the mind with something else. I love my friend Chad Cruiser's teachings on, on scripture memory. Incredible, powerful stuff. He's got two great seminars on overcoming sin, victory in the brain, transform brain, transform life. You can find all of that and, and, and make sure to visit their booth up there, Anchor Point Films, Chad and Fadia Cruiser. Great stuff on overcoming. And, and, and scripture memory is one really good way to fill the mind with something. But also filling it with a different image. I find to be very helpful in my personal walk with the Lord on this. Because the image that just hits you is visually taking up brain space in your occipital lobe, even if you're not looking at it. So you want a different image in there. And so what I like to do, I think I like to envision Christ in the sanctuary. And remember that I'm in the day of atonement here. And that we mean business. Afflict the soul. Here we are in the very last days of the time of the judgment. And I want my name cleared in the book of, in the book of life. And I know, I think of the cross. I think of Jesus. I think of me and my family. My wife and my two little boys in heaven together. And you know what? Another good way to think about this is that person on that computer screen, that's a real human being. That's a soul who has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, who, who is a victim to this system of, of abuse and victimization. And, and maybe think about that person's soul. And you don't want to be visualizing the image you just saw, but think about why can't they be in heaven too? Do they know about present truth? Do they know about the everlasting gospel? Do they know that they don't need to live this way? Pray for them. You know, it's hard to take advantage of somebody when you're caring about their eternal well-being. Truly caring about their eternal well-being. And you know, another thing about this, I just said I'd use the analogy of bouncing. Remember this intimacy thing? God has wired us all for intimacy. Even Jesus Christ who never married, even many of you who may never marry, because by the way, if, if, I, I've dealt with this with my high school students. Many of them have this point of view that I don't want Jesus to come too soon because I want to get married first and I want to have kids. 
Marriage is an idol, if that's what we are thinking. The true marriage supper of the Lamb, this is just a type and a shadow of the real thing. And so we've missed out totally on what it means. I had not seen nor has ear heard. Put your faith in Christ and say, come soon, Lord Jesus. Because if I'm saying I, I, need to get, I need to do this, I need to experience this first, I don't understand what it means to truly be in the city of God. And if I think anything in this world is going to satisfy even close. So many of us may not marry. And there are, you know, I, that thing I said earlier about it's going to be hard to find a suitable marriage partner, you know, particularly among the pornography using male population. And it's going to be hard for guys to find a, a virtuous woman in this world with, a, with the fashions and the, all these things from Hollywood and the novels and everything coming at them. So there may be situations where many of us go into the very last days, which are coming very soon, single. And that's okay. And that's okay. Worst things have happened, right? So, so God has given us all a desire for intimacy, though. If you are not moving into a marital intimacy situation, find good, close friends and brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. Particularly, guys, we've got to, we've got to get close with our brothers because we're kind, of, we're kind of aloof. We're kind of like dignified, you know. We don't get close. We don't get tight. We've got to do that because that fulfills our need, our true need of intimacy, friendship, closeness, oneness with humanity that God has created us to be as the family of God. So bouncing. See the guy bouncing on the treadmill there? You're wondering, what is that about? Uh, it's kind of like this. When you get hit with that image, you are being bounced into a situation, and you will bounce somewhere. Most people just bounce with the flow. They're thrown here, and they bounce right off. Ooh, I like that. Ooh, that's good. And then pornography, and then all of this, and then they're jumping off a cliff, okay? But the bounce will happen, but we can redirect the bounce. We can redirect the neurochemical flow into a pathway that will be of holiness instead of debased vice and sexual uh, sin. And so what you do is you put a little muscle into it. Have you ever bounced on a treadmill and put a little muscle into it and you can bounce a different direction, right? So what direction? How about this? God, I know that you have given me a sexual nature that I may never use, but you've given me a sexual nature to remind me of the relationship of Christ in the church of the relationship of marriage, which is a picture, a shadow of the true oneness of God and, and his people. Now, when you're thinking deep, high intellectual thoughts like this, we are going from the lower to the higher, aren't we? We're going from the lower debased animalistic tendencies and feelings to the higher thoughts of theology, truth, Jesus, love, grace, salvation. And, and you start dwelling upon what the sexual nature was given to us for because the bounce is there. And you're like, God, why won't you just take my sexual desires away? Because he wants to use them. He wants to use those parts of your nature to sanctify you. And this is not going to happen if we just let ourselves bounce where we want to go. We have to really think deeply about this. Lord, why did you give me that sexual nature? Bounce into holiness. Thank you for giving me a bounce heavenward here. As you bounce your eyes off the image immediately. That's a phrase that was introduced to me a long time ago. Bounce your eyes. I love that because boom, you're, nope, I'm not looking at that. And then bounce your, 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 your thoughts in the direction of heavenly intimacy because God wants to fulfill that need for intimacy. By the way, in 1 Corinthians 6, 16, it says when you become one flesh with a woman, it compares that to being one spirit, one in spirit with God. So again, it's an analogy and it's a picture and it's a shadow of the oneness of us with our, with our Lord. Now, if we don't stop the lust cascade where, where we were just talking about it, the initial image, millisecond, boom, I'm thinking these thoughts, having these prayers in like a second, right? This isn't a few minutes later, you know, I'm going to get around to, no, this is right in the moment. But if we don't handle that right in the moment, what happens if we go down that whole step four, step five, and then to step six, 
Norepinephrine then burns, so this is after you've acted out sexually, norepinephrine burns the initial arouser into the memory to call it up at a later time. There's, a, there's an area of the brain within the limbic system called the salience network. It remembers significant things, emotionally significant things in your life, and this has just been a crazy intense emotionally and physiologically ex- significant experience, right? If you viewed this pornography clip, it's been insanely intense, and then the brain says, that was good, remember that. And then it calls it up at a later time, and this is how the addiction takes hold even further. Also, what happens is upon orgasm, oxytocin and vasopressin, which are like the trust, love, and bonding hormones, are released in enormous quantities. These are the same hormones that are released when the woman breastfeeds her baby. Intimacy, bonding, trust, love, hormones. And this is also, by the way, why women will undergo childbirth more than once. The most insane experience you've ever seen, if you've never seen it. It's like, I don't know how they would ever want to do that again, unless you know, they had an epidural or whatever, but uh, so much oxytocin and vasopressin, that moment the baby comes out, it's just like, ah, I told, that's what Jesus said. When the baby comes, she forgets all her pain, right? I, I botched that, paraphrase that scripture, but you know what I'm referring to. And so it's not just the breastfeeding and the, and the childbirth, but it's also in the sexual experience when this happens. And so we were designed by God to have this trust, bonding, love, intimacy relationship with a spouse so that we bond with her and want to return to her or him significantly, continually. The norepinephrine burns that arouser in and says, that was good, that was significant, that was emotionally wonderful. And and then it it helps deepen that connection that we have that we're based on principles and that we're based on loving this person and sacrificing for this person that we talked about earlier. It's all part of the same package. And then this, by the way, is why, this, this, this vasopressin oxytocin issue, is why sexual experiences are so foolish before marriage. Because you irrationally bond with that person. And don't, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, I'm talk, not talking about just, you know, sleeping together. Any sort of sexual connection where you're having physical sexuality in any way, and people, you know, my high school is always, is this a sin? Is this a sin? Is, okay, can you do that without lusting after the person, you know? And they'd ask me specifically, are you allowed to do this before Medge? Are you allowed to do that? I'm not going to get into the gruesome details right now. The rule of thumb is, can you do that without lusting? Because this person is not your spouse, right? So you don't want to get involved sexually, obviously, before marriage, because the Bible says, but if you do, all this oxytocin and vasopressin is, oh, this person and I are so one for each other, this this, is so wonderful feeling, and then you can't evaluate them objectively anymore. And you can't really think, you know, well, we're going to be looking at this through rose-colored lenses. And then, by the way, if you break up, it's all this terrible pain because you've had this bonding experience with the oxytocin and vasopressin. And then, you know what you do? You jump into a new relationship because you need that fulfilled because you become so connected with this person. And that's where we get into a lot of destructive cycles. The effects of the lust cascade activate the fear center, the anxiety center. Remember the amygdala? When you're activating the amygdala, it, it, de- it, it impairs the anterior cingulate cortex, which is the conscience area of the brain, which is the altruism area of the brain. And so that, that is going to be impaired by continually exercising the fear circuits. Paul called it having their own consciences seared as with a hot iron. Also, the effects of, the, of going down the whole lust cascade, the higher cortex is left out of the equation again and again. That results in more impulsivity, less self-control, 
and more self-centeredness. So the character is damaged further and further. The natural route also to pleasure is decoupled from, from this. We're supposed to have the frontal lobe engage in a lot of activity, and then that stimulates the nucleus accumbens, which sets right behind the frontal lobe. So when you do good things and altruistic things and gain victory and exercise self-control and do, you know, bless others, then, then you feel good, right? But when we just directly target the pleasure centers through drugs, through pornography, through video games, through our media excitement and all these, you know, hyper-stimulating, hyper-pleasurable things, we don't gain pleasure through the normal route anymore because we've found an end run around the way God designed us to live and we become addicted. And then the pleasure receptors, as we said earlier, are numbed. You can see this is a drug abuser, but same thing for a porn user. Do you see how, how much it's numbed in the middle there in the two sections uh, that are green? They were nice and bright and orange in the, in the healthy control brain. And then for the drug abuser, normal experiences in life just aren't as pleasurable anymore. Viewing a beautiful sunset, doing something good for somebody else just doesn't quite fulfill. The sexual experience releases endorphins and keflins and opiates four times stronger than morphine. And due to the intense pleasure reward at the end, the whole process, seeing the image, the survival drive set into motion, dwelling upon that image, heightening the amygdala tension, releasing the amygdala tension through self-abuse, which is combining a dopamine rush and the reward circuit firing, that whole lust cascade becomes a pattern that the brain demands again and again and again. And then we get in a situation where many of you looked at this today and you said, what have I done to my brain? And you look at that and you're going, man, we have gotten ourselves in a serious, serious situation. There's that image again. But I want to give you hope by just putting this slide back up and showing you That is a renewed brain. Romans 12 verse 2 says that we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that is a promise that applies to every single soul in this room. There is nothing you could do to disqualify yourself from the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. He will give you victory. He will give you a renewed mind. Your job is to look and live. I wish I could spend an hour explaining that statement. Look and live. It's all on the DVDs, but I hope we've, we've, we've opened the discussion here in a way where we can explore it further and think about our children. In a parenting seminar, we're going, I want to make sure that I've got my genetic code in good shape before I move into that situation. And parents who have kids already, you know that the greater victory you gain in your life, the greater intimacy you have with mom and dad, the better your children will be in, in shape to be spiritually strong because they'll see the character of Christ. So let's close with prayer, shall we? Father, I thank you so much for the victory that you've given to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that you will transform our minds, that you will transform our brains and give us renewed minds. Lord, everyone in here struggles in some way. Many deeply, deeply involved in these these dark worlds that they never wanted to be in, that they never thought they'd be in. And Lord, I pray that you give them hope. May they look up as the paralyzed man by the pool of Bethesda and see the loving face of Jesus Christ inviting them back home. As open-armed fathers, as, 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 as we look at the, the, the parable of the, the prodigal son, we know that you open your arms to us in that way. We thank you for embracing us even in the midst of our flaws, but loving us enough to move us to victory, to give us the victory to rebuke, to, to chasten, to give us what we need to hear to, as a wake-up call. Lord, we know our salvation depends upon ourselves governing these things. And so we do pray for that victory that Jesus Christ has purchased. 
Lord, I know that we've had such a short time to delve into these issues of, of overcoming. And I just pray that people would walk away with hope. We've seen the darkness. We've seen the damage. And may we know definitively, firmly, that there is much more to be said and studied and pondered regarding the victory you want to give us. And may we move away from here exploring that deeply and dedicating ourselves to it firmly. And for our children, we pray that whatever we have given to them as an inheritance, that you would give us the strength to, to overcome in them and to give them victories through our parenting that we didn't give them through our genetics. Help us to love and be patient with them even as you are patient with us. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in phoenix arizona gyc a supporting ministry of the seventh-day adventist church seeks to inspire young people to be bible-based christ-centered and soul-winning christians to download or purchase other resources like this visit us online at www.gycweb.org